primary care knowledge boost, cholesterol management in general practice. And welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we have a bit of a chunky, uh, intense episode for you, but it's really, really good. Um, it's with Dr. Asim Mishra, who talks to us about management of cholesterol in general practice. Yeah, he does. Um, he's an academic GP trainee and he helped write the guidelines for the lipid pathway in Greater Manchester. So it's a really good deep dive into the topic. Um, we start with definitions or um, discussing definitions and then we talk about primary and secondary prevention before then talking about some of the considerations around uh, interpreting lipid profiles. Yeah exactly and um, then we take a look at management Um, we focus quite a lot on statins um, for obvious reasons but um, we do also talk about um, some of the newer medications and particularly in clizerin. Yeah so we hope you enjoy and we'll be back at the end to share some learning points. Hi, my name is Asim. I'm an academic GP registrar in ST4 and since May of last year I've been working as CVD prevention lead for Greater Manchester ICS. Brilliant. And I'm a human being from the planet Earth. <laughs> but that's, that's really good. We were going to ask you about the big picture so it's perfect that you've zoomed out that far. So we're hoping you'd talk us through the current landscape of managing hyperlipidemia. We thought we'd start with why the topic is so important. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important for a few reasons. Um, firstly, I've always found cholesterol quite difficult if I'm really honest and I think I've learned a huge amount in the last nine, ten months. And it seems things have moved on quite a bit from what I remember from what I was taught at medical school and also from my chats with colleagues in, in primary care and how people look at cholesterol. I think bigger, slightly more zoomed out from cholesterol is cardiovascular disease. Um, I don't like that term. I, th- I think it makes us think of one particular illness when in reality we're talking about heart and blood vessels which go through every part of the body and are linked with every part of the healthcare system. For me, this is important because at least in Greater Manchester we have the highest rates of heart attacks and strokes in England. Uh, It's a huge impact on people's quality of life, the amount of pain and disability that's involved with a a stroke or heart failure, angina. These are severely limiting people's quality of life, let alone their life expectancy. It is a significant link with inequalities in cardiovascular disease. I think four times more likely to die early from cardiovascular disease if you're in the lowest decile than the highest. Again, if you sit on a a tram in in central Manchester and travel outwards, life expectancy will drop. I think it's one year for every three minutes you travel out. And largely that is due to cardiovascular disease. Of course, it's due to lots of things associated with deprivation and then that complexity and the intersectionality between what we're seeing in, in disease and illness and how that interacts with society and the wider landscape as well. Out of the core 
clinical things that we can do as medical people, optimizing people's, uh, you know, like AF, blood pressure, cholesterol, significantly reduces their risk of further problems. Um, so it's something really powerful in our grasp. Um, that's really great. Thank you. Um, that kind of focuses everybody's thoughts for the rest of the episode. Um, but we thought right off the um, top um, at the start, we should think about definitions. Um, so we will discuss FH or familial hypercholesterolemia later on in the episode. But what do we mean when we talk about hyperlipidemia? As I've been learning about cholesterol, I found, and, I, and you, we often hear people say, what's my cholesterol? Is it okay? What's normal cholesterol? A key message I'd like to get across today is that it's a directly proportional relationship and perhaps in the future when we have better tools, we'll personalize our medicine and those at the highest risk we'll give a lower target to, those at less risk we give a higher target to. We've kind of done that in a pragmatic way and that's why the secondary prevention has a is much more stricter than primary prevention. I think hyperlipidemia is a difficult one. I want to keep things simple today and and I'm definitely not an expert by any means and I don't profess to be an expert in cholesterol but I don't think any of us need to be either. There are people with very high cholesterols, uh, say a total cholesterol greater than nine and there is a range of genetic and other reasons why they could have that from medicines, diabetes, alcohol, these kind of things. Ultimately, I think we have to look at this in context of the person and what we're talking about and what, why we're suggesting that they do something or make some change, whether it's their lifestyle or take a medicine every day or, or these things and how it benefits them. So <laughs> I know it's not a straight answer, but it's how I see these things. And the more risk someone has, the more I'll think about maybe suggesting we think about lowering their cholesterol and the less risk they have, the less I will put weight on that. And I think if you think about how we manage cholesterol differently between primary and secondary prevention, in primary prevention, we use Q-risk. We don't look at the cholesterol numbers. It doesn't really matter because what we're trying to do is pick build a holistic picture of that person's risk and if their risk along with their smoking and their weight and their other medical comorbidities is above a certain threshold you know then we talk more about how we could change that risk and lowering cholesterol is one very strong evidence-based way that people can lower their risk and any lower is lower you know if it's better than not lowering it it's <laughs> it, it yeah. it's it's ultimate this is why i think this is a really interesting conversation and, and really important topic again not so much because of the biomedical stuff because i i think this is true shared decision making and it has to be patient centered and shared and and i can't help but feel that the headlines we see uh, on Daily Mail and all, all those things are just misunderstandings because we're trying to have really complex conversations with people yeah. really quickly and, and it, they feel like they're being told to take medicines when I know that we don't mind if they do or don't at the end of the day and, and no one 
will go about it that way per se yeah how to make an informed choice um so on the guidelines when they talk about in sort of the gp guidelines or the um nice guidelines when they talk about primary and secondary prevention they talk about primary as in high risk for cardiovascular disease outcomes but not having had any of the events yet like no angina no no heart attacks no heart failure or stroke and then um secondary prevention being having had an adverse event is that a fair one to use here yeah i think so i i think the the problem is coming down to what you constitute as high risk (laughs) Uh yeah isn't it essentially so that they're saying that people with a key risk above 10 percent should be offered statins um the other thing just talking about key risk um it's not the best it's not uh, i've i've found some other things from Europe um, that are much more nuanced and taking more information as well. But it is what we have and it is good and, and we do have it. But some considerations um, is that because it's not talking about lifetime risk, it's talking about 10-year risk. That means yeah. age plays a really big factor in risk, which is something important just to keep in your mind. And it's more important because risk with cholesterol is cumulative. So it's how high you have it for how long you have it. 30-year-olds with type 2 diabetes with a BMI of 50 will have a very low Q risk because they're 30. (laughs) Even though they are potentially a very high lifetime risk when you think just about the 10 years it way underestimates their lifetime risk and it's just something important to note this is all risk related it's all nuanced um kind of trying to think about the future Uh, and so that's why they've they're talking you know it's been in the statins have been in the news a lot and particularly for primary prevention because nice is talking about lowering that 10 percent q risk even lower to to anyone who'd want them and and that is based on this understanding that the lower your cholesterol the lower your risk and Mm -hmm. so statins are cheap and so really it's it's more of a public health measure rather than a kind of clinical one it's it's coming from a different place i think it's still in discussion and obviously we had we would have to balance the costs in monitoring side effects and so on so it's not so straightforward which is why they haven't just done it and again i think it comes back down to what does the person in front of you want like what are their values do they like medicines not like medicines um and so on um so are you ready for a case um so we've this is a uh, one that we've made up we've got a 60 year old robert we've done his non-fasting lipid profile as part of an annual review because he has hypertension um so we just thought we'd do it so you could talk us through what we're looking at in a lipid lipid profile so say like it pops into our uh, blood results test what what should we concern ourselves with when we're looking at that test are there any that we can ignore? Do we need to look at it all? What matters most? Yeah, absolutely. So for 
for um, Robert, he he's just got hypertension. Um, he's not had a cardiovascular event per se. Um, so for him, we'd automatically be thinking about key risk in terms of better understanding his baseline and kind of holistic cardiovascular risk. I think the the cholesterol to HDL ratio was used in the past, but it's going a bit out of fashion, um, and I'll just ignore it. Um, again, total cholesterol uh, is something useful to look at, and particularly when thinking about genetic things, why Robert's cholesterol could be high, uh, things like FH. FH is just one among many, <laughs> many uh, genetic disorders. Um, so I would, if it was me, I would first put it into Q-Risk. And the, the bit of the total cholesterol profile that has been studied the most and is the most highly atherogenic is the LDL. Um, Robert's LDL is 4.6. Q risk might be that his total risk is not high, um, but it, that is a high LDL. Mm-hmm. And you know, if Robert hasn't had his if hasn't had his annual review, or he was just diagnosed with hypertension this year, and we've not done his cholesterol before, it, he's been at that LDL potentially for a long time. So. I think the easy answer is is for primary prevention, it's about key risk uh, more than cholesterol because these are what relatively well people. Um, a lot of these people may not be taking any medicines anyway and, and you know, it becomes a, a big thing if, if a statin is your first medicine that you take. So I would go, I would think about key risk for, for Robert. Um, and you've spoiled it a little bit for the listeners, but um, let's just run through Robert's full profile that's come back um, from whenever he's had his blood test. So his total cholesterol was 6.9. His non-HDL was 5.7. His LDL was 4.6. His HDL was 1.2 and his triglycerides were 3.5. Um, so when we're thinking about a lipid profile like that, um, when might we not be able to trust it? When might we need to be cautious about a lipid profile? Yeah. I don't think we can really truly trust any test because they all, it's important to remember that they all have plus minuses, you know, and, and I see it too often people making decisions and changing things on differences that are less than the test is sensitive. Um, so it's an important consideration that we always have to take this into context with everything else going on with Robert. Um, I think the main things that should trigger a second look into it or a, or a look a bit deeper because I know these will come through asynchronously from when Robert is seen and might be seen by someone else going through lab results. It's the, the triglycerides is something useful um, and also the the total cholesterol as well. Um, so as we said, if the total cholesterol is very high, it's worth having a think about whether there could be something going on as to why it's high um, and finally the, the triglycerides there's multiple reasons to be aware of the triglycerides firstly it can depend on your lab 
and the actual way they calculate or measure LDL. And in most laboratories, the LDL is actually calculated using an equation. And the higher the triglycerides, the more likely you underestimate the LDL if it's calculated. And that is not the case if it's directly measured. The equations the labs use are sometimes different. Often if you don't get an LDL back, it's because the triglycerides have been very high and they've been unable to calculate it. The The other time is when the triglyceride is really high, um, like very high, above 20. And um, for those people, we should just refer them straight to the lipidologist. Essentially, that's more clear-cut and easy for us. Um, they could have hypertriglyceridemias or other causes that are pushing their triglycerides super high. The slight grey areas, if the triglycerides are less than 20, but above 10, and this is when we should really be thinking about the secondary causes of dyslipidemias, things like really poorly controlled diabetes, alcohol, antipsychotic medication, uh, HIV medication as well. Our GM pathway talks about repeating. Um, if you do get a triglyceride above 10, then it's worth repeating and doing it as fasting as triglycerides are most associated with the chylomicrons um, from the guts. So if you've just eaten, you will have a higher triglyceride. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, I think you might have already answered this question. We were going to ask you about what other clinical details or observations or blood tests would be important to look, look for with Robert. Um, you did talk about taking it into account with the bigger picture, looking at Q-risk, looking at the individual person and looking holistically. I mean, yeah, if Robert hasn't had something like a HbA1c, again, you could question whether you should do that yearly as routine, but at least once, if you're going to do blood tests anyway, it would be a good thing to pick up earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you did touch on this earlier, but just to round it out for the listeners, um, say his total cholesterol came back at 9.2 and his triglycerides were four. Um, what would you do here? So that's a, I think that's a really good question, actually. If his total cholesterol was above nine, with his triglycerides high as well, you could argue that you could repeat it, see if it's lower I'd probably have a look at his previous cholesterol tests as well and see is this, you know, has his cholesterol always been nine point whatever? Straight away above nine makes me wonder about FH. And, you know, you, you can use tools like the Simon Broom or the Dutch Lipid Clinic Network tools or having t- spoken with the, the lipidologists, um, they're all really, really helpful, <laughs> friendly. And and they are all happy to receive advice and guidance um, as well. Uh, so I would, in the first instance, probably repeat a fasting one and then go from there. If the total cholesterol is still really high, potentially a, a, a letter to the, the lipidologist asking what their thoughts are or if they'd like to see them or whether we'd want to do any genetic things. I think this is where our 
uh, intuition or, or really the kind of detective work comes in. It, it's it's about family history and you know, tell me about your family. If people had heart problems in young age, sudden deaths, those kind of things. If someone has a high cholesterol and also those things, then I definitely prefer them. Um, if we ignore um, that kind of 9.2 total cholesterol situation and we go back to his in- initial results, where his total cholesterol was 6.9 and his LDL was 4.6 and the triglycerides were 3.5, um, we pop him into Q-risk because he has never had an event um, before. So um, he's in the primary prevention situation. Um, what his Q-risk comes out at, um, 10%. So what would you advise? What would be the stepwise management um, to go through with Robert? Yeah, absolutely. We first want to explain to him what that means in in normal people speak <laughs> and words. And and there's lots of ways of doing that. I've had reasonably good success with the whole if there's a hundred of you, ten of you might have some kind of problem um with your, your heart brain, like strokes and heart attacks, and help him better understand what that means for him. Um, I then talked to him about what he could do to help reduce that risk and the range of options. Um, hopefully we will have had a discussion and, and data gathering and, and I'll know a bit about his life and lifestyle. Um, his kind of, uh, does he move? What's his weight? Does he smoke? Does he drink? Then also discuss treatment options like medication. Um, I tend to just ask people what they think about medicines first to gauge their thoughts because this is a really contentious topic (laughs) so I think that 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 his preconceived ideas about this is so important Um, especially with statins we know about placebo nocebo and the power of the mind in in bringing out both effectiveness and side effects but uh, so I, I would start to talk to him about this, gauge what he thinks, um, and, and I would definitely offer or, or bring up the statins as an option. Um, with primary prevention, the guidelines um, suggest this starting everyone on a tovastatin 20 milligrams to start with. I wish we had better tools available to us. I wish... I could say that if you take this statin every day, then your risk would reduce by this much. Um, but I can't. But what we can say for relative certainty is that your risk will reduce and significantly as well, depending on how much we lower his cholesterol by and its relative risk reductions with all of these treatments. So the higher your risk, the more absolute risk reduction there will be the more there is to gain but on the flip side if you get people early there's a cumulative risk reduction in the the more well people so i think primary prevention is really really important and we don't have the tools at the moment with q-risk to really bring that out uh, effectively I thought atherosclerosis is progressive and permanent and irreversible, but it doesn't seem like that's the way, apparently. Um, There's been some recent studies and literature and thinking, and it shows that I think the fatty streaks start quite early 
20, 25, 30. They then progress to the plaques. If you lower your cholesterol early enough, there is some evidence that the plaque can actually reduce in size, only a small amount, but still. And more so, it stabilizes, and the risk of rupture reduces quite a lot. Um, and that doesn't happen after you have a heart attack or stroke. So actually, there's loads to gain. Um, so you can argue that the longer you are on statins, the more you get out of them. But then there's an effort of having to take them every day and remember to take them and the monitoring as well um, to balance against that. And just remind us about the initial monitoring after we've started someone on a statin. Um, with primary prevention, the guidelines um, suggest measuring three months later. And you'd want to do their, their um, LFTs at that point as well, of course, if you've just started them on statins. And you're ideally looking for a greater than 40% uh, reduction in their LDL or non-HDL. So now moving on to statins and potential side effects, um, can you talk us through your approach to some of the side effects of statins? Statin side effects is one of those things where if you believe what people say, they have lots of side effects. And if you look at the evidence, they don't yeah. have very many side effects at all. Um, so I think it, it, this is why that, that whole discussion is so important and how you, how you, how you go about it and what ideas people have already about it is very important. The risk of significant and serious side effects is very small. We measure CK on everyone who has a mild muscle ache, but rhabdomyolysis is really serious and people are quite unwell with it. Um, and the CK has to be elevated a reasonable amount mm. for it to be rhabdomyolysis as well. Um, so the main things, people do talk about muscle pains and aches as well. Part of the statin pathway works in the muscles and so there is kind of a biological explanation as to why. Having a look at the data here, I've just got the some of the numbers in front of me so I haven't just uh, remembered these but for tolerable myalgia it's about 200 per 100,000 patient years. Mm. Um, depends on how tolerable that, that muscle pain is, of course. The intolerable muscle pain is about 0.2 per 1,000 people. Um, going up to se severe myopathy, 0.11%. Um, and rhabdomyolysis is, again, 0.1 in 100,000 people as well. Uh, you know, in a practice of 10,000 people, you're unlikely to have very many people um, or maybe one in 10 years with significant uh, side effects if you gave satin to everyone in your practice. <laughs> uh, so for patients that maybe don't tolerate that um, level of intensity, what, what do we do next? Where do we go? So um, there's different types of statins. Um, there's a national statin intolerance pathway. Mm -hmm. Um, it looks really confusing the first time you look at it, but once you spend kind of 10, 15 minutes following the lines, 
it can be quite helpful actually. Um, and it talks about trying different statins. It talks about trying lower dose of the same statin. It talks about stopping them, seeing if the symptoms improve, and then giving them another one and seeing if they come back before you then truly call it statin intolerance. Um, and all the while, that should be with education about statins and their side effects to people. Um, I quite like, there was a this big crossover study where half people get a placebo, half people get statin, and then they switch over. So everybody gets placebo and statin, and they all have the same rate of side effects <laughs> in the same people. Um, and so I quite like using that with patients. Um, and so what the, the patient comes back, they're like, nope, I'm not having any more of your statins. Um, I'm done with them. I don't want them anymore. What else can we prescribe? Um, so there's other oral therapy, um, other medications, things like uh, ezetimibe. Um, if someone is really intolerant to statins, there's ezetimibe and bempedoic acid as well. However, the lipidologists are really keen. In fact, they're really, really keen. And a big thing that we talked about while making the GM pathway uh, is really kind of spending that time to make sure people are truly statin intolerant before we call them that. And I think there was a concern or a risk that lots of people would be called statin intolerant um, along the way. And, uh, and I, I think it is important to bear that in mind because statin intolerance, it, it's like a saying allergy in a way, rather than a person a patient saying, I don't like this because of this. And so we need to make sure that people we code as statin intolerant are truly intolerant of statins. Sometimes changing the type of statin can actually work quite well because the number is less, even though it's just as effective. So the, the whole high-intensity statin, a high-intensity statin is technically any with a greater than 40% reduction in cholesterol. And that's why a Torva 80 is high intensity, because it gives you a 55% reduction in cholesterol. A Resuvastatin 40 gives you 53%, and Resuvastatin 20 gives you 48%. So that's why Resuvastatin is the second high intensity statin. The number is far less for Resuvastatin. So, um, people I feel may have uh, elements of placebo or, or strong thoughts. It tends to be a nice way of being like, here you go, try this different one. Uh, you know, that may not have the same side effects for you. Um, so, coming to the end of the episode, we thought it was wise to touch a little bit on the management um, around secondary prevention, because um, we've talked a lot about primary prevention. And we've talked about the fact that primary and secondary are different in the fact that there are um, the primary are people who've never had an event before, whereas um, secondary uh, prevention is about people who've had an event before. And we use Q-risk in people with primary prevention, um, but we don't use Q-risk when we're thinking about secondary prevention. So if we have a case of 70-year-old Audrey, um, she's come in for a medication review following having had an ischemic stroke. Um, so how would the um, scenario of managing her lipids change um, compared to Robert? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think secondary prevention is a bit 
more straightforward. Uh, it is, like you said earlier, Sarah, about the tovastatin, 80 milligrams, and everyone should be on, on that automatically. The lower your cholesterol, the lower your risk of further events. And the cholesterol graph with LDL and uh, reduction in cardiovascular events is really amazing. I've never seen a graph like that in science. I think it's irrefutable. The lower your LDL, the lower your cardiovascular events uh, in terms of outcome. We've made a pragmatic cutoff at 1.8 LDL, which is the same as the 2.5 non-HDL, whichever LDL is preferable, but if that's not available, there's non-HDL. There's some biological explanation that below that level, the rate of atherosclerosis is halted or reduced. Um, But the graphs that I was talking about, they contradict that because they go all the way through zero. (laughs) If you don't have cholesterol, you can't have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. It's as simple as that. This is this it, it blew my mind when I saw these graphs and the RCTs, the prospective studies, the Mendelian genetic randomization studies follow up for 50 years and across the world in all the countries all saying the same thing and all going through zero. It's really powerful. Um, so if there's anything we can do, the least we can do, actually is is getting her cholesterol as as low as we can. 1.8 is the pragmatic cutoff, um, the magic number, if you will. Um, But even if we get 50% of the people in Greater Manchester in that high-risk cohort at 1.8 or below, we'd make a huge difference. For every one millimole per litre reduction in LDL, there is a 22% relative risk reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events. That's huge. That's way bigger than I had thought. Um, and so when we're seeing people with Q risks of 30, 40, obviously we, we can't Q risk these people, but their risk is so high. Um, and a statin or lowering their cholesterol by even one, two, three will have significant lowering in their lowering in their risk and improvement in outcomes. That's really interesting. Um, so, so we're not doing key risk because it's a secondary prevention. We're going to offer eighty milligrams of atorvastatin, and if that doesn't lower the cholesterol or their non-HDL or the LDL. Uh, to the magic numbers um so the ldl was 1.8 um and the non hdl was 2.5 and um, if we're not getting there we can use the same principles the same meds that we could use for primary prevention and i'm going to ruin this uh i'm going to mispronounce this but uh, azetamib or azetimibe or azetamib um and then we've got benpedoic acid as well but for those who are truly statin uh, intolerant or have that allergy, um, do we have any other options for lowering cholesterol for secondary prevention? Essentially, yeah, we, we've got other things that we can try. If people are truly statin intolerant, there are other newer medicines like Vescepa, 
um, that's only just come out, uh, but that's still more specialist kind of advice at the moment. Um, and that's based on triglycerides, confusingly. And another newer medicine is some of the injectable medicine, and particularly in glycerin is now something we could give to, to people in primary care. Within Clizaran, um, I'm aware it kind of came on the guidelines. It was one of those ones where it seems to have just been given to GPs to be able to prescribe without much sort of information about the full picture in terms of um, cardiovascular outcomes or mortality that I can tell. Um, it's definitely something that a lot of GPs are a bit worried about. Is there any advice about when and how to prescribe or can we ask for help with this or ask the lipidologist to see patients before if we're not comfortable? What's your advice there? Absolutely. I think it's a really difficult topic, if I'm honest. Um, it's taken me a while to understand it. And it is a new medicine. It's new in multiple ways. It's a new type of medicine. It doesn't hit receptors. It blocks transcription of DNA. Oh. It works in the same way as the PCSK9 inhibitors that the lipidologists have been using. It's the same protein that it's stopping inhibiting, but in a different way. And so where uh, the PCSK9s need to be given every two weeks, I think. And patients can give them themselves. But it is definitely a specialist lipidologist medicine. Uh, Inclisiran is given, I think, zero months and then three months and every six months. So just once every six months, once people are stable. Uh, it gives you about 50 to 60% reduction in your LDL-C from the studies. Um, there is not any long-term outcome data. And, and I think that is a big sticking point for, for people and understandably so. However, we have pemperidoric acid and we don't have the long-term outcome data for that either. There are other medicines uh, that we have without long-term outcome data. Again, it's not that... Uh, I think if any... People have to be comfortable to give it. Um, and, I, and I think it's no one should do something that they're uncomfortable with. Um, all of the lipidologists, were, we tried to involve as many of them from Greater Manchester in our pathway. Um, and a big part of making our pathway was to try and get agreement from people across the, the kind of system, if you will, in to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Uh, and by GMMG ratifying this and the Greater Manchester Clinical Effectiveness Group ratifying it, it has passed a, lo a lot of people who are happy with it, essentially. The other thing is that there are studies on it because of the way it works. It's not quite like other medicines. And I know the BNF is a bit confusing to look at. It just says, it doesn't say much. <laughs> Because it doesn't interact in that way. Yeah, it's hard to counsel people, yeah. There, as with any injection, there's always risk, you know, where, where the injection needle goes in. There was studies, I think the big study was in Greater Manchester in primary care, the SPIRIT trial. And there are various studies that are ongoing 
um, and should be reported on in the next few years. There's not been any big problems so far. You know, it, it's difficult and, and glycerin is difficult because it's a subcut injection. Injectables for cholesterol to primary care is new. So there's there's compounding new things with it. You know, I, I, I do believe this has been approved by NHS England at the highest national level. And the AAC pathway that they've made it is a good document and it is good work. And it is bringing up, it is making us talk about cholesterol today, <laughs> in a way. Right. Um, yeah, and which yeah, yeah. is important. And I think, any again, any better is better. And statins are the best lipid-lowering medicines we have. And that's where we should be concentrating on, uh, on the whole. And if people are taking their statins and remembering to take them every day and their cholesterol is still up, then we have other things we can now also give them to help lower it further. It, it seems to be another good tool in our arsenal, if you will, of medicines. <laughs> So we'll link to as many of the resources that you've mentioned throughout the episode on our episode description. They've been utterly amazing, so thank you. Any other resources that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, so there's the the National Statin Intolerance Pathway. Health Innovation Manchester have a lipid webinar on their website that we've recorded with the lipidologists going into a bit more detail than I have. On some of the some of the bits of the lipid profile, um, and it is interesting if people are interested in it. It's helpful to understand it a bit better. Um, there's also our GP computer searches on the Health Innovation Manchester website and the pathway, and also a prescriber's guiding guidance information about a bit more about what Inclisiran is. Um, and how it can be used and how to go about doing it um, as well. And there is also a really useful and helpful patient information uh, leaflet guide on Inclisiran that Health Innovation Manchester have co-produced with patient groups. I think the Heart UK and Patient Info Statin uh, materials are also quite good uh, to send to patients as well. Um, so as always, our last question is about learning points. So what would you like listeners to take away from our chat today? Yeah, I guess the, the one thing that I'd like listeners to remember is that managing cholesterol in primary care doesn't have to be as complicated as it seems. And by following a few simple principles um, and magic numbers, I think we can make a really big impact on, on people's well-being and quality of life. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Uh, so Lisa, now it's just us two. Um, what are your learning points? Oh, it was a lot of information. I feel very... Um thoughtful um, since we finished uh, the episode but um, for me I think one of the biggest take-homes was um, about how much of an impact um, the management of um, cholesterol and, and it done well in primary care can actually have um, on outcomes for people 
um, particularly those who've had an event and with my um, my bigger picture um, public health hat on, um, you can just see how um, doing that for even just a small proportion of your population can make such a big difference um, in overall cardiovascular outcomes um, in general for the population. Um, so yeah, I, I just find that really interesting. Yeah, I did. Um, it's it's something where when you're kind of looking at people's medications or having those conversations with people about statins, um, it can feel like a very sort of um, a sort of government or top down kind of like, oh, you know, we've been told to offer you this or uh, gets in the way or a, an agenda, essentially, that it can feel a bit of an agenda. And and actually, it's these things that feel like an agenda, like the blood pressure, the the cholesterol, where they might have come in for something completely different. But if we can make these wins with what we've got um, and make a big difference, even though you're not seeing it, that is a good motivation. So, yeah, it, that I, I think it was really good to orientate myself and think, yeah, there are wins here and this is a massive health inequality and it's really important. So, yeah, it's sort of done well and done appropriately. Yeah, it's really, really useful. Um and yeah, I think it was just um, that reorientation as well about how widespread the impact is. Um, whenever he was talking about um, the fact that it affects all systems, um, you always think of cardiovascular diseases being the heart. Um, but he was talking about the heart and the blood vessels, the fact that it can impact the um, the kidneys, um, you know, limbs, the brain, um, liver, all sorts of organs can be affected, even the bile, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah so it's just it, that reorientation I thought was really useful yeah lovely so thanks so much for listening and we hope you guys got a lot out of it um any comments feedback or if you're liking these episodes please share them and please rate us on itunes and things like that it helps people to find us so thanks very much till next time on primary care knowledge boost this podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of gp excellence Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.